I'd like to talk to you about our way forward. A two-step plan of rescue and recovery. A two-step plan to build a bridge to the other side of the crisis we face to a better, stronger, more secure America. Tonight, I'll lay out my first step, the American Rescue Plan, direct cash payments, extended unemployment insurance, rent relief, food assistance, keeping essential frontline workers on the job, aid to small businesses. These are the key elements to the American Rescue Plan that would lift 12 million Americans out of poverty. Presidents will make any number of promises. In fact, it often seems as if they're simply promising everybody what they want to hear. And while that's a good political strategy, because nobody likes to hear what you can't do, it doesn't reflect reality. While presidents may behave as if they can rule by executive fiat doing whatever they want, the reality is something different. The real power players in Washington are oftentimes not who you believe they are. And even presidents are sometimes powerless to change things. So with the Biden administration fully underway, now is a good time to figure out who those power players are and focus on what this could mean for President Biden's agenda over the next couple years. This is Smart Politics, and I am your host, Anthony Arnold. For this episode, we're going to start by first remembering President Obama's efforts to pass Obamacare, and then President Trump's efforts to repeal the same bill. Because both of those demonstrate how power really works. And then we'll look at the senators who will be holding that power over the next two years. Now, I'll admit, this episode is going to be heavy on process. We're going to explore the way in which legislation actually gets made or not made. And it's fair to ask, why does that matter? But here's why. Politicians want us to believe that when we choose them, we're choosing a distinct set of policies. But we are. What we're choosing is a person who, on our behalf, will work with others to decide what policies they think are best. And the reasons those decisions get made, the how and the why of legislating, is where politics happens. It's where compromises are made, and it's where our elected officials choose outcomes that will affect millions of people. So in order to have a real understanding of politics, we have to understand the process. And so today, we're going to dive deep into that process. If you're ready, then let's begin. Part 1. Crafting Obamacare In 2008, Senator Obama became President Obama, in part because he had promised to address health care. Now, this was before social media had turned everybody into a constant political observer. And so if you didn't follow politics closely, then it may have seemed as if the Affordable Care Act simply emerged one day and became law. But behind the scenes, that was far from the case. And there was one provision specifically that was the subject of intense negotiation. Originally, there was a public option in the bill which would have created a government-run health insurance agency to compete with private insurance companies. The hope was that it would help drive down the cost for everybody. That version of the bill had 59 votes, one shy of the 60 needed to break a Senate filibuster. And so Democrats tried to convince Senator Joe Lieberman to support the bill and give them the vote they needed. 
but he, for whatever reason, refused to support a public option, and he couldn't be convinced otherwise. So despite the provision enjoying widespread support among Democrats and the president himself pushing for it, it was removed from the final version of the bill, giving Democrats the votes they needed in the Senate. But Lieberman's impact didn't stop there. Because when Senator Ted Kennedy died and Democrats lost the ensuing special election, that meant they could no longer break a filibuster, even with Lieberman's support. But the bill still needed work. So it was altered via budget reconciliation, which only requires 51 votes, not 60. However, that also meant that some of the planned changes were no longer possible. President Obama had spent valuable months trying to win one vote, only to see his plans altered by forces that not even he, the president, had any control of. And that's the sort of power one senator can wield, even over a president, even over an entire party. A fact that would be shown again almost 10 years later when it came time to get rid of the same health care plan. Part two, repealing Obamacare. President Trump also ran into the limitations of presidential power during his four years in office. And he discovered them while trying to repeal Obamacare. From the first moment the bill was debated, Republicans had positioned themselves as against it. So for nearly a decade, a big part of their platform had been getting rid of it. They were so dedicated to this effort that in 2012, presidential candidate Mitt Romney was running on a plan to repeal Obamacare, despite the fact that it was his own legislation as governor that was the precursor to Obamacare. There had also been multiple efforts to use the Supreme Court to invalidate parts of the bill, and it seemed virtually certain that if given the chance, nothing would stop Republicans from doing just that. So when Donald Trump took office with the Republicans controlling both the House and the Senate, most political observers believed that Obamacare repeal was all but guaranteed. And President Trump began those efforts immediately, issuing executive orders designed to slow down the implementation of Obamacare while Congress began working on a full repeal plan. By March of 2017, Paul Ryan, the Republican leader of the House, was rolling out a replacement plan for Obamacare, signaling that conservatives were very serious about their efforts. And while that bill was tweaked and changed over time, it eventually made its way to the Senate, where Republicans were assumed to have the 50 votes necessary to accomplish the goal they had held since 2009. Except that's not what happened. It was clear early on that there were significant obstacles in the Senate, but Republicans pushed forward, eventually calling for a series of votes to be held in July. Again, most people thought these votes would spell the end of Obamacare and would enable President Trump to keep one of his major campaign promises. However, as you may remember, that's not what happened. The final major effort to repeal failed. With the deciding votes, coming from Senators Lisa Murkowski, Susan Collins, and most famously, John McCain, who in a dramatic moment held his vote until the very end, giving a thumbs down on the Senate floor and essentially marking the end 
of Republicans' attempts to get rid of Obamacare. These three senators had defied the will of their party and their president. And in doing so, they had dealt a major blow to both. Just like when Obamacare passed in the first place, a select group of senators had been responsible for legislation that would shape the lives of everybody in the country. And on both occasions, this possibility had been overlooked. So if we're looking at the first two years of President Biden's term, who are the senators that may play a similar role this time around? Part three, the big four. So if we were in a world without the filibuster, here are the four senators I think matter most. Joe Manchin from West Virginia, Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, Angus King from Maine, and Susan Collins, also from Maine. Two Democrats, one Independent, and one Republican. Let's start with the Democrats. You've likely heard of Joe Manchin. Ever since Democrats won both Senate seats in Georgia, Manchin has been repeatedly mentioned as one of the most powerful people in government. And that's not an exaggeration. Without his support, President Biden will find his agenda frustrated at every turn. So who is he? He's a Democrat from West Virginia, a state that Donald Trump won by almost 40 points, a state that Democrats have not won since 2000 and are unlikely to win anytime soon, and a state that Joe Manchin barely won the last time he ran for Senate in 2018. Which means that if he wants to keep being Senator of West Virginia, then he probably needs to be very careful when it comes to what bills he supports. His voter base is more conservative than other places and may not like it if he supports some of the more liberal ideas floating around. The other Democrat senator to watch is Kirsten Sinema from Arizona. Unlike Manchin, Sinema is a relative newcomer to the position of U.S. Senator. But based on her brief time, she has already positioned herself as one of the more conservative Democrats, which is in line with her time in the House of Representatives, where she joined the Blue Dog Coalition which is a group made up of conservative Democrats and the bipartisan Problem Solvers Caucus, made up of centrists from both parties. However, the dynamics of Arizona are much better for Democrats. Biden narrowly won there in 2020, but the party has been steadily gaining ground for the last six years. So while Senator Sinema may be conservative, the strength of the party in her state means she can more easily be convinced to support Biden's plans. So now we move on to Senators King and Collins from Maine. Maine has voted for every Democrat presidential candidate since 1992, yet Susan Collins, a Republican, has been one of their senators since 1996. In fact, from 1994 until 2012, their other Senate seat was also held by a Republican, long-serving Senator Olympia Snow. And since then, the seat has been held by Independent Angus King, who was the Independent Governor of Maine from 1995 until 2003, before he became their second Senator starting in 2012. All of which is to say, 
that the senators from Maine are among the most uniquely positioned in Congress. Senator King, despite being counted on by most Democrats to support their positions, has to be aware of the fact that his constituents are very comfortable supporting Republicans. So while he's likely to go along with the president, that shouldn't be considered a sure thing on every issue. There are likely areas where even he would see legislation as going too far and would try to convince the president that a more centrist-friendly approach would be best. For Senator Collins, the motivations are slightly different. She's undoubtedly aware that at the presidential level, her state votes Democrat. And with the way Maine has been shifting, the Republican Party has largely written off being competitive in presidential elections, which is why Collins is given a pass to do whatever she feels is best for her particular situation. So if the president is looking to pass bills with a Republican on board, which goes along with his messaging, then Collins is absolutely one of the most likely ones he'll be talking to. And while that would make legislation less progressive, it would also make it an easier sell to Americans who are tired of the partisan fighting. Of course, these four aren't the only senators that matter. On the Democrat side, Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren will be actively pushing legislation, while Republican Senators Lisa Murkowski and Mitt Romney will also be targets of bipartisan talks. But the four I mentioned matter the most. If Manchin and Cinema agree to a bill, then there will be pressure to just accept their demands and do some good. Similar to how Joe Lieberman ultimately got what he wanted. And whatever Susan Collins decides, other Republican senators may want to follow her lead. Similar to how John McCain's decision gave other Republicans the freedom to break away from the party. And if these four senators group together, that their four votes will be the deciding votes on everything. So what does this all mean for President Biden and the country? While I can't really guess the specifics of any legislation, I think it's safe to assume that bills will be shaped with all of this in mind, which means compromise where it's possible, especially in areas like spending. While in areas like abortion rights, it could mean no legislative movement at all. It's easy to get the most active supporters of a bill on board. It's easy to get the first 45 votes. But it's those last handful of votes that really matter. And everybody knows it. Which is why the politicians holding those votes so frequently get something in return for their support. Politics is often discussed in the wrong way. We ask presidential candidates, what would you like to do? But that's not the right question. The right question is what will the president be allowed to do? Because even with all of their power, a president is not a king. And oftentimes, what a president wants is not the same as what a president gets. And that's our episode for today. So look, I know we covered a lot of territory, but this sort of in the weeds conversation, this sort of deep look at process is the sort of things we need to be thinking about when we go into the voting booth. We all need to do a better job of recognizing that when we elect politicians, we aren't just going to get 
what we want, that they may not be able to deliver the things they promised. And while yes, that may make them sound dishonest, that's just how politics works. So if we want to make the most informed decisions possible and learn to figure out who makes what decisions, then we need to educate ourselves on this sort of process. And so I hope that with this episode, we've begun that. So that's our episode for today. Uh, thank you for listening.